Coming up on Plain Crazy Down Under, we catch up with the latest from global defence industry supplier Kongsberg. It uh, has the ability to recognise targets down to ship class and it's been designed to operate in, in a very contested environment and has a lot of ability to make sure it actually makes and actually gets through to the target. And Mark Robinson from Frequentis brings us up to date with the latest in air traffic management technology. What it's doing in very simple terms is replacing the view that a normal controller has out of the window with cameras and taking that camera feed to be controlled somewhere else. It's all high tech this week as we get plain crazy. Well, hi everyone and welcome back to the show. It's time to get plain crazy, of course, and it's time to talk aviation and it's time to talk aviation with you, my good friend Grant McCarran. How are you, mate? Hey, not bad, buddy. How are you doing? Uh, not bad. Getting getting used to these fancy radio intros. I think we'll get it right at one of these points in time. Ah, uh, yeah, just in time to change tack and do something completely different. <laughs> yes, well, you know, we're not going to do anything <laughs> different this week, Grant. In fact, we're going to go back to Avalon. There was such a great uh, opportunity to get great content from that, and uh, we're going to play some today um, that's actually quite relevant because if you follow defence and defence aviation, there's been a lot of talk about defence lately with, uh, as we record this, the defence strategic review that's come out, mm-hmm. and um, I know that has a lot of impacts, probably more for the Army than anyone else in this one, but uh, we're still keen to have a look at how it it uh, impacts uh, aviation, but there's actually some uh, interesting takeaways from the content uh, that we're going to be presenting today, even though it was recorded prior to that announcement coming out. That's right, mate. It's uh, very topical. It's talking about long-range strike from uh, Kongsberg. So we caught up with John Fry while at Avalon. The discussion covers NASAMS, which is their National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System. And we also went into the Naval Strike Missile and, of course, the Joint Strike Missile, which is designed for use on the Joint Strike Fighter. And, yeah, it was a really good chat. And it actually came out first on the Australian Defence Magazine podcast. So apologies if you follow both. You would have heard this one back in March during the event, but uh, it's so good and it's very topical now. We're letting it out on PCDU as well. Yeah, Grant, it actually is topical. Now that the DSR has come out, um, There is, uh, it seems to us just from looking at it, some discussions we've had off here, that uh, there looks to be more of a, uh, a focus now on more long-range strike and uh, mm-hmm. you know trying to hit any potential enemy before they are able to land on our shores. So... You know, having a having a look at uh, some of these uh, long range weapons. Um, you know, and you know, you know. I mean, we're talking about dire circumstances and worst case scenarios, but we have to be prepared for these things. Let's face it. Mm. And uh, of course, there is a, a big aviation aspect for that. So that's uh, part of the remote uh, control type of stuff. If you want to look at it that way, but also, Grant, uh, later in the show, we're going to be having a look at the subject of remote air traffic control towers. That's right, mate. We've uh, discussed it before in, uh, in the uh, original series of PCDU, but uh, it's back again and we chatted with Mark Robinson from uh, Frequentis Australasia and uh, they're doing some more work with it. It's uh, matured a lot since there was a trial back in uh, Alice Springs from Adelaide. It's a good chat. Yeah, okay. Well, there's a couple of good chats in this one, so let's get to it. John Fry, welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. How are you? Yeah, not too bad today. It's been a, an incredible show. Are you finding that uh, Avalon's going well for Kongsberg? Yeah, I think it's been a great show. Um, definitely, I'd say it's been our best ever. Yep. There's, a, there's a great buzz to the uh, to Avalon this year. I think it's been uh, four years as a long break, and I think everyone's happy to be back at uh, the air show. <laughs> That's the truth. So, mate, uh, let's start off with a quick overview of yourself. Uh, let's talk about Kongsberg, the global company, and Kongsberg Defence Australia. Okay. So, if you can give us those overviews of yourself and those... 
Sure, so um, I joined Konkberg in 2019 when, uh, well, I suppose we established a landed company here, uh, really back on the base of the NASAMS program. Uh, I joined uh, Kongsberg from Raytheon, Australia. I spent nine years there working a number of programs across uh, ground-based air defence and, and weapons. Uh, and I was the capture lead for the NASAMS program while I was there. Uh, prior to that, I had a few years uh, in consulting and other places, and I was actually 13 years in the Army as a ground-based air defence officer. So, so my background is air yep. defence, so I'm quite passionate about the, yeah, right uh, the NASAMS capability that's <laughs> coming into service with the Army. So. Well, we'll yeah. get to NASAMS in just a sec because I really want to hear about that. But uh, let's talk about uh, Kongsberg and the Australian Army. Yeah, so Kongsberg is a uh, Norwegian defence company. Uh, so Kongsberg Defence and Aerospace is part of the Kongsberg Group. Kongsberg Defence and Aerospace is about 4,000 people globally. Uh, it's a growing business. Bunch of technology areas, uh, but you know, I suppose probably pretty much well known for their work on uh, precision strike missiles with our naval strike missile, joint strike missile, ground-based air defence with the NASAM system. We do submarine combat systems, we do vehicle combat systems, and uh, and we do a lot of F-35 components as well. As Norway is a F-35 partner, and so uh, we are essentially the Norwegian, uh, I suppose, key partner for the uh, production of F-35 components as well. Fantastic. Okay, and uh, here in Australia, you're doing NASAMS, uh, you've got a number of other products, so, but I think we should probably start with NASAMS. Yeah. You've mentioned it quite a bit here, yeah. and uh, you know, I think it's very special to you because it's right back where you started with Army again, but now you're supplying the latest technology. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so NASAMS is a, a joint Raytheon Concord product. Um, it's been around for some time, um, and it's continued to evolve over the delivery to 13 different nations. And obviously the, the latest nation the system is, uh, has been deployed in is actually in Ukraine, uh, where it's operational today, um, after being provided to that country uh, in November last year through, uh, through the US government. Um, the Australian program itself, Raytheon Australia is a prime contractor. Um, so Kongsberg is, is the sub working with them. And from an Australian perspective, we are doing all the, Kongsberg Defence Australia is doing all our local hardware production here in country. So we've actually transferred a bunch of technology on that program, including the uh, building the fire distribution centres, um, which essentially is the heart and brains of the NASAMS capability. Um, we're also producing the classroom trainers and doing, uh, I suppose, final integration and assembly, the final assembly and integration, I should say, of the uh, canister launches as well. Okay, so uh, National Advanced Surface-to-Air Missile System, correct? NASAMS. So there's a lot going on. What's the kind of ballpark range of defense? Uh, everyone talks range. Well, I, I don't know. It's, it's good to start with yeah, that because yeah. that, that gives it, I, don't, I know it's like, oh yeah, everyone talks range, but it, it, yeah. it gives everyone a perspective. Is this a, a close in? Is this a, a medium? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's actually say it's an intermediate range. So in, a, in terms of, it's somewhere between short and medium. Yeah. Um, so it uses, uh, the Australian configuration will use two types of missiles. So the, the AMRAM, which is the uh, Yep. Advanced medium range air to air missile and AIM-9X Block 2. Okay. So, uh, which is the Sidewinder missile. Yeah. So essentially the Sidewinder is more your short range mm -hmm. missile. AMRAM really pushes you out into that, the early part of the medium range spectrum yep. as well. So it's, um, and that's a complementary mix of IR and RF. Yeah, exactly. And it's actually the same weapons we're firing, obviously Super Hornet or F-35 in an air to air role. We just fire them from the ground. So do you have a booster to accelerate them up or are other missiles sufficient straight so, up? The no, they've obviously got their own rocket motor yep. um, and obviously the range of an AMRAM launched from the ground is very different from the range of an AMRAM launched off an aircraft. Um, 
but no, they, uh, there's no modification at all to those weapons. They can literally be taken off the wingtip of an aircraft, slid onto the NASAM's launcher rail and, and fired. Okay, so I imagine this would be, you've set up a forward base, you have a central command post within and a few batteries uh, around the, the exterior perimeter ready to fire and look after the anything that's coming. Yeah, exactly. So the, the fire distribution centre itself is essentially the heart of the system. Mm -hmm. And once it's up and running, you know, the radars, the electro-optic sensor and the launchers are all commanded, essentially controlled by two guys. Yeah. And, uh, and you can network a bunch of these fire units together to provide really extended area cover. Um, and it's again, it's a system that's been optimised for the defeat of you know, fixed-wing aircraft, uh, rotary-wing aircraft, that really are very effective against cruise missiles, and that's obviously been seeing that in Ukraine. Yeah. Uh, that's really about the, the uh, I suppose, the automated decision support that's actually embedded in the C4 to make, uh, to provide operators with rapid engagement decisions, because as we know, these missiles are designed to fly low, pop up late, and you only have a very short uh, engagement yeah. window to, to engage them. So exactly. And uh, you mentioned a lot of Australian components uh, that you're uh, integrating here in Australia. So are you able to give like a rough ballpark of Australian industry involvement, that being the buzzword? Yeah. Uh, and, and so how much of this is sustained, going to be sustained within Australia? And how yeah. much needs to go back overseas to? Yeah, so, it's, um, so from a fire distribution centre perspective, uh, I'd say the vast majority of that has been built locally. Um, there's some some screens that have come uh, had to come off from offshore, and uh, and some of the uh, I suppose some of the computers which come out of our uh, you know, specific to the to the system. But the vast majority of that system has been made locally, which I'm incredibly proud of. That yeah, very. Uh, and so we can pretty much know every nut, bolt, and screw on on, on those systems now. Um, every cable, etc., that's on that system has all been made uh, locally. So um, so it's a significant amount of uh, of our scope. Um, especially on the hardware side, has all been sourced. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're in a position now with the sustainment contract, so Concrete Defence Australia is now actually has a support contract with Raytheon Australia for providing that local support. So we're the front line for support and supported by our Norwegian parent. Yep. So that's um, a good position to be. Yeah, and it also means it's faster turnaround on getting things sorted. Yeah, absolutely. It's much easier to get your uh, accreditation sorted out because it was all made locally. People can come and look at it. Yeah, de definitely. If we have an issue, we can go down the road to Darramont yeah. or Red Arc, who've done a bunch of that power supplies and hey, you know, yeah. ILEX for our cables, and we can, you know, we can get repairs done quite quickly without having to go offshore. So Fantastic. That's a genuine sovereign capability for support. Yeah, no, that is good. That yeah. is very good. Uh, the last thing you want is to have to ship a whole unit off, get it repaired, bring it back, and what do you do in the meantime? Exactly. Yeah, uh, especially yeah. if they're being barricaded, blockaded, etc. Definitely. So, okay, is there anything else you want to talk about NASAMS before we move on to the next? Uh, next no, just package? that the, obviously that program, we're, we're a fair way through the production. Yep. Um, so I think it's going to be a fairly exciting year for that program moving forward. And as that, we get closer to getting the kit into the hands of the soldiers and starting the, the, uh, the training aspect. So I know that um, you know, Raytheon and Confer are working very hard on uh, getting that capability up and running, yep. which will, uh, and, yeah, it's all looking very positive. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of effort in the training and making sure everyone knows what to do and then on it goes. It's, so. it's a step changing capability oh, for yeah. Army, and, uh, but I think they're, um, they're going to love it. They're going to love it. Okay, so moving on, the next item is uh, that we want to talk about is Strike Master. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I grew up with Strike Masters in New Zealand. Completely yeah. different. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the old Blonties. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So these are land-based, portable, on a vehicle, take out a ship kind of missiles. Yep. Uh, definitely medium and slightly long range when you hear about that. So can you tell us about the Strike Master? Yeah, sure. So I suppose personally, um, so Con the Naval Strike Missile from Kongsberg uh, can be can be deck launched from a ship or it can be obviously vehicle launched as well. Um, so we actually have a coastal defence system. Uh, we actually use the same C4 architecture that's in NASAM. Um, if it that's works, been, that's, yeah. been, that's been adopted, obviously running different software. Um, we do about obviously uh, maritime strike rather than ground-based air defence. But um, we've actually filtered that system into Poland, um, and uh, the US Marine Corps are now also building a naval strike missile-based land-based maritime strike capability also. So what Strike Master is really is it's a new a new launch platform for an existing system. Um, so it uses a missile that we have that's actually coming into service now with the ADF through the Navy. Um, and essentially it's a, yeah, it's a twin pack on the back of a Bushmaster. Um, again, the, from an engineering perspective, it's pretty much, yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, we're delivering a twin pack system on another, another program. And um, yeah, I think it's something that provides a strike option that's going to be available um, as an option to increase our strike capability in a very short time frame. So it's very portable, so you could do the same kind of thing as some of the other portable systems, get it out there in an aircraft, have it drive somewhere, launch, drive somewhere else very quickly so it's not a target anywhere, launch again, then get out. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. So that's the, uh, I think the real advantage of yep. going on a landing craft, you can put that into an island or uh, somewhere on the mainland and uh, you know, with a range of uh, NSM of you know 250 kilometres, that's a significant amount of uh, volume of uh, of waterway and again NSM's also a land attack weapon as well so if you need it to it can, you can fly something over the land as well but um, yeah, a, I think it's a great capability and again entirely consistent with what our partners are doing in the region. And it's got it's got its uh, intelligence geared towards finding ship signatures and things like that and identifying them in clutter and uh, like its countermeasures on ships are huge now so breaking through all that. It's a very smart missile it's probably what I'll firstly say it uh, has the ability to uh, recognize targets down to ship class yep. so you can tell this missile exactly what type of ship it needs to uh, to target yep. and um, and it's been designed operating in a I suppose in a very contested environment and uh, has a lot of ability to uh, to make sure it actually makes and actually gets through to the target so uh, yep. and that's building on the naval strike missile the NSM yep. which is now also available inside an F-35's weapons bay well, well, it is, but it's a slightly modified one. So right. it's actually, uh, it's called the Joint Strike Missile, but, it is, but its evolution was out of the Naval Strike Missile. Oh, okay, so it's actually the JSM that goes inside. It's the JSM that goes into the That's the J for Joint have, Strike Fighter. That's right. We, um, and obviously we have the NSM on the, on, coming in on the ships. Yeah, okay. Um, but for the JSM, essentially they started out with the NSM. Yeah. But they essentially had to, uh, we need a different body shape to be able yeah, to fit internally. Yeah, because it's going to fit inside that bay and it's not huge. It's not huge and it's, and it's quite tight once the, uh, they've taken all the available room. Um, <laughs> but they've designed a missile that does fit internally in there and it actually will be the only you know, powered maritime strike, land attack, cruise missile available in the F-35A for internal carriage. So it's a, um, it's a pretty unique place to be in the market. Yeah, because the Americans didn't think they needed something like that. So Kongsberg was building it and then got it set for Norway's F-35s, if I'm getting this right. And now I think the Americans are interested in it again? Yeah, so I think, well, the Norwegians, um, you know, they were, they were obviously moved away. They were going all, 
whole F-35 fleet, they wanted again a maritime strike weapon for for their nation to operate in very complicated terrain against, you know, um, uh, you know, to defeat, I suppose, um, lots of fjords, lots yeah, of... Yeah, it's a compli- it's a complicated environment they work yeah. in, you know, blue water, but groundwater. Yeah. Yeah, operate and in fjords, exactly, where people, can, where people can hide. Yeah. Um, so they wanted a very smart missile, they want to be able to carry that internally because you're going to have a stealth aircraft, you really want to keep it stealthy and keep yeah. your weapons tucked in. <laughs> um, and uh, so that Norway, Norway actually uh, developed the requirement and have funded the development. And uh, I think now it's so unique in terms of availability, then all other F-35 nations are now looking at, uh, yeah. at JSM, really. If you want to do maritime strike, then it's, uh, it's, it should be the logical choice. Well, congratulations yeah. on that. And uh, with, if all goes well, I believe we'll uh, hopefully see JSM on uh, Australian F-35s. But Well, I hope so. Yeah. so. Obviously, Australia hasn't decided what yeah. they're going to do yet. Um, the missile is still lost. The missile's ready. The, 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 I suppose it's going through final qualification on the F-35A. Um, that should be all sorted soon. And, uh, and you know, I think Norway and Japan have already selected JSM. I think there'll be a bunch of other countries that'll be doing the same thing uh, quite soon. We can but hope. We can but hope. <laughs> well, is there anything else you'd like to say while we've got you uh, here? I think, you know, probably the only other thing, we're, we're super excited about the Naval Strike Missile Acquisition for Navy. Um, so obviously, uh, government signed a contract end of last year with Kongsberg to provide uh, Naval Strike Missiles on the Anzacs and the Hobart class missiles to replace Harpoon. Yep. Um, that's an accelerated program. Uh, we'll have sort of capability on on both of those platforms by the end of next year, which is a very aggressive time frame. And uh, but we're super, I suppose, motivated, excited about getting that done because we know it's a you know, it's a, a great capability. It's going to significantly increase the uh, the surface capability of, of those two vessels. So I think it's a a great thing. And like I said. Similar to, I suppose, some of our other key partners, the US, UK, Canada have all selected that weapon as well yeah. for their vessels. So, yeah. Good. All good. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time Thanks, and man. it's been very informative. Awesome. Always, no thank you very much. Keeping up to date with the latest news is a huge part of our daily lives. Now you can have news on demand with the Australian Independent Radio News app. News and sport in your pocket whenever you want it. Wherever you are in the world, if you call Australia home, you can stay in touch with the Air News app. Download it now for news on the go. This is Air News. This is Air News. This is Air News. This is Air News. news. Australian Independent Radio News. Look, let's be honest, sir, we've all got to eat. That we do, Kevin. Food is such a big part of life, isn't it? And talking about food can lead us to all sorts of places and all sorts of people. Yep. And every week on the Food Bites podcast, we catch up with someone who might be a TV celebrity, a high-profile sports star, a politician, could be anyone. And we talk to them about food, their kitchen skills, or, you know, sometimes lack of, uh, life and and love. And, Kevin, every week there's the Friday Food Poll. Oh, yes. Now, that is Food Bites with Sarah Patterson and me, Kevin Hillier. You can find us wherever you find your favourite podcast and, of course, every Sunday morning at 9 o'clock on the Ace Radio Network. You're listening to Plain Crazy Down Under. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Grant, wasn't that really interesting to uh, hear some of that, uh, you know, the, the capabilities? And, uh, boy, weapons are getting smart. For better or worse, they're getting a lot smarter. <laughs> yeah, they certainly are, mate. And, uh, look, it's it's a sign of the times as technology merges into everywhere. So, yeah, smarter weapons, longer ranges, keep everyone further away. 
it's kind of important for an island nation. But also that what's important, mate, is, uh, speaking of at a distance, is being able to set up air traffic control towers at remote locations, improve safety without having to have that uh, overhead of people on site. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a matter of, in one case, keeping people away, but in this case, keeping people closer to population <laughs> centres and still being able to, uh, you know, serve a very important uh, air traffic control function. Let's head back to Avalon and have a listen to Mark Robinson from Frequentis. Okay, Mark Robinson from Frequentis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Grant. Great to be here. Excellent. Now, mate, we're standing here at Avalon and at the Frequentis stand. So let's start a quick background of yourself and Frequentis, an overview of what the uh, organisation does. Sure. Um, so I'm English, obviously, by heritage. Um, I came to Australia 25 years ago. Just had my 25th anniversary, in fact. Wow, and the accent's still strong. I'm afraid so. <laughs> uh, I'm an air traffic controller by trade. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in the Royal Navy in the UK for 10 years as a controller, controlling on the aircraft carriers on a shore basis. Yep. And in 1998, I came to Australia and joined the Australian Air Force, and I did another 11 years in the Air Force as a controller. Um, finishing up as a wing commander and leaving uh, in 2008. So I'm a controller by trade, still very much um, that shapes a lot of the things that I do. I've been working in private industry now for about the last uh, 15 years and I've been with Frequentis for about seven um, and my current role is I'm the head of sales and head of air traffic management for Frequentis in Australasia. And by Australasia I mean Australia, New Zealand, uh, Fiji, Papua New Guinea and some other Pacific Islands. So we have a fairly wide market. That's a very, very large chunk of the earth right yeah, there. absolutely. Yeah. So can you uh, step us through Frequentis and also Frequentis Australasia? Sure. Um, so Frequentis is an Austrian headquartered company. We have about 3,000 people around the world. Um, the headquarters is based in Vienna uh, and we address essentially five business markets. By, by far, our biggest market is the uh, air traffic management world. And I'll talk more about that in a little while. Um, but probably second to that is defence, um, and in defence we look at air traffic control and air defence, and then the, the three of the units that we look at is public transport, which is mostly railway systems, public safety, which tends to be the blue light organisations, so control rooms, for example, uh, such as the Metropolitan Police in London, and finally maritime, um, and so that is things like coast guards, marine rescues, that sort of world. The the key commonality between all those customers is the need for mission critical and safety critical equipment whether it be information systems or in a lot of our cases communications they have to be highly redundant highly dependable um, often five and six nines of reliability so we have to meet those uh, and that's what we do across those business segments in australia we've had a presence here since about 2004 and we've grown from about four or five guys back then to about 130 people now so we have uh, four offices um, Brisbane, which is where the head office is, where I'm based, uh, Sydney, um, Melbourne, and a small office in Perth. The reason we were at 130 people, we acquired uh, a company uh, called C4I, mm. which is a um, small, medium defence sovereign provider of secure communications for the Defence Force. Um, they also do a lot of export work out of Australia, which is very important, but also a lot of work for the Australian Defence Force. And when we acquired C4I, we brought about another 80 people on board. So that's why we, we're, we're quite large now, a significant presence. But um, yeah, um, we're still growing, getting a lot of contracts, but um, going well so far. Fantastic. So now that we've got the overview, let's talk about what's taking everyone's eyes here at the stand is three very large screens and a control panel, obviously for a virtual air traffic control or remote air traffic control. Are you able to talk about that product? Sure. Um, 
So remote tower or digital tower or virtual tower, those terms are kind of interchangeable. Um, they're used by different people, but they all mean pretty much the same thing. Uh, and what it's doing in very simple terms is replacing uh, the view that a normal controller has out of the window with cameras and taking that camera feed to be controlled somewhere else. The somewhere else can be downstairs on the same airfield in a port port uh, portable building, an ATCO hut, something like that. Or, as we do in Germany, it can be five or 600 kilometers away in a completely different city. And to be quite honestly, the, the technical challenges doing it 500 kilometers away or doing it downstairs on the airfield are the same. Okay. So it's been growing. It started in Scandinavia at some very um, slow moving airfields where they wanted to centralize the workforce. Mm -hmm. And it's very much grown from that. Uh, our first customers in Germany with the German ANSP DFS, who are quite a well-known company. Um, and we now have two certified systems in Germany that the regulator has stamped and said, that's all safe. So we are providing uh, air traffic control day in, day out at those places. And the first one has been since about 2018. So it's five years of operations where it's all done by cameras and not from a control tower. That's fantastic. So this is real world application. It's not, oh, we're doing a prototype or a trial. Absolutely. It's in use. Absolutely. So we have, I think we have about five different systems certified around the world. Um, we have one in Jersey in the Channel Islands, which is used as a contingency application. And by that I mean, if they have to evacuate the tower for a fire or a terrorist threat, they, they can turn the cameras on and use those rather than having to somehow get the picture again. So, so that's in Jersey. We have one in uh, Brazil and Argentina certified as well. So we have quite a range uh, of actual in full operation. Yeah, and that's obviously in quite a few different countries and countries that have very different infrastructure environments as well. Absolutely, and the infrastructure is really important, um, especially when you think about the German case when you have to transport the video five or 600 kilometers away, you need to clearly have to have a very uh, highly dependable network infrastructure in place, whether it be fiber, tends to be the preferred method of communication um, with a redundant path, of course, because mm. as anyone who works in an airfield knows, there's always work going on and there's always a backhoe digging stuff up. So it's not unusual for things to get broken. So we have to have the diverse paths yep. to, to meet all the normal requirements for, for any aviation equipment. Yeah, exactly. So that's all your uh, DO178, 278, all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Software assurance is the way we develop it. It's all the same. We have to show the artifacts, mm -hmm. how we've done that, which yep. is an interesting point because a lot of people ask about artificial intelligence and how Ooh. that may come into this. And it's got a place. Um, some of the problems with AI is it's very hard to follow that software assurance path, mm -hmm. how you've got to making the decision. So that will come for sure. Um, I think we just need to introduce those things a little gradually. So. Yeah, it'll take like a common base AI module that has gone through the rigmarole of testing that you then build on yeah. uh, the certification. So in Europe, South America, UK area, that kind of thing. How about here in Australia or in the Asia Pacific area? Are you getting many nibbles for this? So there's um, Air Services, the, the ANSP here, have been looking at digital towers for probably about 10 or 11 years now. Um, they did a trial between Alice Springs and Adelaide in around 2010-11, which it was very early days for the technology, yeah. so there was a number of reasons that didn't go on. Um, so they've gone back to it, they've given it a little bit more time for the technology to mature. Um, and they've gone to market over the last couple of years again for, for that. We were lucky enough to be the preferred supplier for our services, and we are um, under contract now to provide that at two locations in Australia. And that project's just started, uh, and that will be rolling out over the next two or three years. And hopefully that will be the, the, the first two of a number of places. Um, our services are very open to say that there are 
several of their towers which are getting quite old, yep. which could be candidates to be replaced with this technology. So we'll see how that goes in the next few years. Plus there's a number of locations that could really do with a tower, but getting people out to those locations, manning them, building Absolutely. it, all that is a pain in the butt. Absolutely, and there are certain locations which we see the number of uh, movements increasing rapidly. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that Castle looks at these very carefully to make sure the operations are still safe. Uh, one of the things that may happen is that air services are asked to provide a service, so this may be, you know, this technology may be something which can help with that. Are you getting much uh, interest from Defence for this, given that they have their own uh, areas, towers, all that kind of thing? They do. Um, one of the things we're looking at um, and talking to Defence about is the deployable or the expeditionary yep. aspect of this. We have some contracts with the uh, US Department of Defence for a couple of fixed and a couple of deployable versions for this. So that's a very good um, reference, if you like, that the, uh, the US military put their trust in us to do that. So um, we're having some ongoing discussions with the Air Force about uh, how this might work in a deployable situation. Um, it certainly would bring some benefits to them. Um, I spent some time in the Middle East in the early 2000s when the Air Force was providing uh, tower services in Baghdad. And I think if some of this technology had been around, then it might have might have been used. It, yeah, to try and get the controllers out of harm's way, that would have been a good thing, I think. So. Yeah, so they're not so obvious being up the tower, especially some of the uh, temporary ones that are scissor lifts. Yeah. Pretty obvious there. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us while we're here? No, I think um, it's great to be back at Avalon. This is the first time we've been here for four years, obviously, because of COVID and a number of things. Uh, we've got our sister company, C4I, here, who are, as I mentioned before, a very um, important defence supplier. So, no, we're just delighted to be here and, uh, and see people and talk face-to-face. Fantastic. Thanks very much for coming on the show. Okay, pleasure. And thanks to Mark for his time there. Really interesting stuff, both from the civil and the defence side. And uh, Grant, Mark's actually a very, very interesting character in himself uh, when you consider the uh, rather extensive history that he's had. That's certainly the case, mate. And that history is being applied very well in his current role. So I'm looking forward to seeing technology like this allowing us to have improved safety at regional locations. There's a lot of airports around that could do with an air traffic control tower, but it's just too expensive to establish and maintain and staff them. So this could be the opportunity we need. Well, the interesting thing there is, Grant, that you could still staff those towers, but have those staff somewhere closer to a population centre where presumably most staff would want to be. Um, if people think back to our original series and our good friend ATC Ben, an air traffic controller. Now, he works locally here in Melbourne these days, but he actually did a stint way out in uh, Caratha, I think it was mm -hmm. actually. Yep, that's right. Now, I mean, I think um, I'm probably putting words in his mouth, but I think Ben actually enjoyed that experience. However, if you think about uh, Air Services Australia's ability to be able to recruit people to work in those locations or at least to work those locations, mm. you know, there's some real advantages here, I think, in, uh, in looking at this as a solution. Oh, it certainly is, mate. And we've already got the situation now where, speaking of ATC Ben, he's one of the controllers working Adelaide approach departure from Melbourne. So we're already doing it in a way. Yeah, that's that's very, very true. So uh, some really good uh, high-tech stuff there, as our good uh, voiceover guy Terry Daniel said at the start there. And uh, <laughs> it's always good to talk about advances in technology, and particularly this one where hopefully it wouldn't Im impact you know staffing, hopefully, uh, too badly. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with that. I always like a bit of technology, Grant. <laughs> technology that augments, not replaces entirely. Yeah, it's a bit like our studio here where uh, it sounds like we're in the same studio and maybe we are. People uh -huh. will just never know. <laughs> Yay, technology. And yeah. I think on that point, we've probably hit a, a spot where we should wrap up this episode. 
We certainly would, folks. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, uh, just to say hello or, of course, uh, to offer, offer us any story suggestions or anything like that, contact at plaincrazydownunder.com is where you go for that. And, of course, uh, Grant, you can also find us all over social media because, you know, social media, we just love it, sort of. Yeah, we'll get there, mate. We'll figure out the social media. But meanwhile, the old school media works pretty well. If you're enjoying this, please tell a friend about us so they too can enjoy some of the Down Under madness. Absolutely. In fact, you know, even if they're not your friend, tell them anyway. You know, we don't care. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> we just want people listening. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we've got uh, lots of uh, great stories and great people to talk to coming up in future episodes. So we'll be uh, looking forward to uh, presenting those to you in the coming weeks and months. Until then, Steve Vischer on behalf of Grant McHeron, wishing you all very safe flying, folks, and we'll talk to you again very soon. Find show notes for this episode along with our contact details and a full back catalogue of shows at plainecrazydownunder.com. Drop us a line anytime with feedback, story suggestions or advertising inquiries. We'd love to hear from you. Title music is You Name It by Brian Simpson. Plain Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies media production. Southern Skies Media.